You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Good morning, everyone. My name is Colin. Uh, I'm here to do scripture reading today by reading from Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 37. Sorry, my eyes. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think? proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. These are the true words of the living God. Thank you so much, Colin. Well, we are knee-deep in our... Hello, Brooks. Good to see you. I owe you a message. I will reply. We are knee-deep in our series on uh, who we are, our identity, and our commitments. And we have identified ourselves, or we want to have an identity as a community of grace, a grace community, if you will. Then we looked at our first commitment, which was to taking the message to the people outside of these four walls, and to make disciples, to make disciples of as many people as we can. Commitment number two was uh, in-house grace of how we are going to live inside these four walls, and that is basing our relationships and everything we do and think on grace itself. Today, we are looking at commitment number three, which is to take practical grace outside. Practical grace outside. That's uh, my choice of phrase. And uh, we are going to call this, uh, if you want some kind of a tagline, love and mercy, love and mercy, love and mercy, taking practical grace outside the church. Okay, I want to begin this morning by uh, being authentic, I think, to say this is an area that I find difficult in my own personal life. Some things come easier than others. This is something that I personally find difficult. However, I have a deep deep, deep conviction from the Bible that this is what we should be doing. Uh, I try and do it as best as I can in my own life, but uh, the elders, we are deeply 
convicted and convinced that uh, this is something that is central and important, and uh, so much so that we are making it one of our three commitments. So uh, today, you're going to hear from some other people as well. Uh, the body is an amazing thing. People are doing incredible things. And uh, we're going to make some space to hear from a couple of our other volunteers and to give you all a peek into what some other folks are doing as well. So you uh, don't all have to take it from me. I'm going to guide us through the passage, and then I'm going to hand over to others far better equipped to talk on some of these things than me. All right, here's the synoptic map of where we're going. Three points today. The first, you are a question. Point number one, the question is how to love. Point number one, the question is how to love. Point number two, the answer is give mercy. The question is how to love, number one. Number two, the answer is give mercy. And my third point today will be a quick look at uh, this idea of practical grace at ECP moving forward. Uh, I've got limited time, there's only so much I can say, but I'll give you a heads up on some of our preliminary thinking on how this will play out within this community. Okay, point number one, the question is how to love. Now, Jesus gets asked some incredible questions in the Gospels. Two of the most significant are, what is the greatest commandment and who is my neighbor? What is the greatest commandment and who is my neighbor? So we are going to look at both of those today. So if we can flash up Matthew chapter 22. Uh, it's a famous passage. I've spoken of this already in our uh, Identity and Commitment series, and it goes like this. And one of them, a lawyer. Many lawyers in the Gospels. Anyway, we won't give them a hard time. We love the lawyers here. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. So it's a sharp question. Teacher. Which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love your neighbor. And uh, we have unofficially adopted the motto at ECP of love God, love people. This is where it comes from. Matthew 22. The big idea, the great commandments, love God and love people. Of course, imbued or hardwired into this is the idea that God loves us first. And I think Manrin referred to that in one of his prayers just now. God loves us first. And so God fills us with love in Christ. And this overwhelming love we have, we can love God back with it, as it were. So we get love from God, and that enables us to love God. It also enables us to love ourselves because God has loved us. And loving ourselves enables us to love other people. And somehow all those ideas go together in the most beautiful way. And so love is a huge idea in the scripture and therefore it should be a huge idea in the church as well. Love God, love people, and let's begin with the love that we receive from God so that we can love Him back with it and love each other with it as well. Okay, that's one of the great questions here. Love your neighbor as yourself. We would love this church to be simple and elementary, focusing on some big ideas like being loved by God, loving God, and loving each other, and being loved by each other too. And let that spill out beyond uh, these four walls. Okay, but the question still is how to love. How to love. There's so much we could say about loving God and being loved by Him, but we'll press it on. And uh, the answer to how to love then shows up in Luke chapter 10, the passage that was read for us just now. 
And so let's uh, turn our attention there. Verse 25 of the passage we had this morning. And behold, a lawyer stood up. Okay, lawyer number two. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. So he's being tested again. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Wow, that's quite a question. It's uh, using some of Jesus' own language about inheritance, about eternal life. And so reading between the lines, Jesus has been talking about this. People have been talking, and now they want to trip him up, trap him. So they're going to use his own words to pose this question back to him. And hopefully he's going to make an error, stumble, say something heretical, and then they can nail him. So that's a bit of the background to what's going on here. In verse 26, Jesus throws a question back at the lawyer. It's very hard to outsmart Jesus. He asks him a question about the law. He's a lawyer, so that is a, a natural kind of sequence. Verse 26, Jesus said to him, in answer to this question about what shall I do to inherit eternal life, Jesus said to him in verse 26, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Which is uh, very cunning. What about you? What do you think? Well, you're the expert in the law. You're a lawyer. What do you think? You've asked me a good question, but I'm throwing it back to you. So Jesus is wise to where this man is coming from, asking his personal opinion. How do you read it? And then maybe this guy was too clever by half. It seems like he then quotes Jesus' words back to him. Because remember in chapter 22 of Matthew, we, the greatest commandment, love God, love people. Remember that? Well, the lawyer is going to now quote Jesus back to himself. So he says this in verse 27, And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. So he's kind of quoting him twice here, using his own words. And this uh, sets quite a compelling scene. What's going to happen next? People are looking in and they're watching. What's Jesus going to say? Is he going to stumble? Is he going to get it wrong? Uh, note the irony. How do you read it? And then the man quotes not what he thinks, but what Jesus previously said. So is he being completely honest? Question marks remain. The answer to love your neighbor, nonetheless, whether Jesus said this before or this man came up with the answer himself, Either way, the answer to love your neighbor as one of the big ideas in the law is going to be very surprising to the people of that time. Just to rewind you 2,000 years and put you into the context of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, where people are very intimate with the law. What does the law say? And the answer is, well, one of the big ideas is to love your neighbor. This is extremely surprising because of the 2,000 verses of law in the Mosaic law, there are only two which talk about loving your neighbor. And so for Jesus to initially say, wow, one of the greatest commandments in the law is to love your neighbor, is going to be like, what? Really? No, that was just a small footnote. The Lord deals with a ton of other stuff, largely about what you shouldn't do in relation to other people. But here, this positive duty to love your neighbor is not altogether obvious. It would have been surprising. It would have been somewhat shocking. And uh, 
Jesus affirms this. He says in verse 28, and he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. If you love God, and if you love your neighbor, you're going to live. And of course, the original question is, what do I do to inherit eternal life? What do I do to get life, real life, true life, not only life in heaven for eternity, but life now, life down here on earth, life in the here and now, life while I've still got breath in my body? That's all part of the big question that uh, is being asked. So let me put it to you like this. I'm just going to quickly read out this paragraph. Thanks, Marcus. Um, some of this, I just want to be completely transparent here. I was trying to track down who said some of these things. I'm just going to give you the, the lump paragraph. But I think some of this is, uh, I wrote this, but some of it is attributable to another theologian that I read. Uh, but I couldn't find the book. So I'm just uh, being honest about that. But uh, let's just take these as not my words. The man is asking a hard question about the quality of life, including the quality of life as it may be seen from an eternal perspective. This is the question about uh, inheriting eternal life. This quality of life includes energy and vitality and a thorough sense of being alive or living life to the fullest. Do this and you will live. Not only in heaven, not only in the afterlife, but beginning now, down here on earth. In other words, it is the practice of love that will lead you into everything that God wants to give you as a life on earth. It is the practice of love it will lead you into the fullness of what it means to be a human and what it means to live a life for God. That's what the conversation is about. If you're wanting the fullest possible expression of a life down here on earth, love God and love people. That's what Jesus is saying. And this, if you do it, you're really going to live. And, of course, there's an eternal dimension to that as well. Well, that's the end of the sermon we think, until verse 29, when uh, the man says, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, second famous question, and who is my neighbor? Which brings us to the second point. First point, the question is how to love. The second point is, the answer is, give mercy. Give mercy. Well, all this talk about life, about being fully alive, and about loving as the way to experience life in its fullness down here on earth, leads us into a story of near murder, attempted murder. Because uh, we read here in verse 30, Jesus replied. So he just launches straight into a, a parable. Jesus replied, a man was going down to, from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So, here he is, this man on the road. Okay, you got to picture it, 2,000 years ago, dusty road. You're going on a trip, you get attacked by thugs. Uh, you're left for dead. Uh, you're in a ditch, you're bleeding, you've got a cut on your head, you may be semi-conscious, uh, you're not doing so well. And uh, this is how Jesus' parable begins. This man is a vulnerable man. He's vulnerable, he got attacked, but he's even more vulnerable now. Because he's lying there. I mean, let your imagination go. That's part of the parable. Like, wow, just picture a vulnerable person lying somewhere. That's uh, how we begin. Verse 31 and verse 32. Now, by chance, okay, as all good stories have, and now by chance. And now by chance, 
a priest was going down that same road. And when he saw him, so there's an absolute 100% identifiable sighting here of a vulnerable person. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Okay, so that both of them see, both of them pass by. That's what's going on here. Uh, Jesus' words of do this and you will live. These people are not doing this, and therefore they are losing life in this moment. By passing by, by seeing and not loving, they can't say, and now we will live. Now we are living life to the fullest. They have passed that opportunity by as well, just phrasing these things together. So not only is this man vulnerable, that's the one word we used, lying there vulnerably, but he's now marginalized because he's been forgotten and excluded. He's both vulnerable, and now because of these two gentlemen, he is marginalized. All right, question to you all. Why a priest and why a Levite? You know, you read the Gospels, you bump into fishermen, you bump into tax collectors, you bump into farmers, you bump into housewives, you bump into all sorts of characters. Why priests and why Levites? For those of you not really familiar with the New Testament, those are kind of like the professional Christians of the day, like the, the theologians, the professors of theology, the guys who really know their doctrine really well. Why them? Well, Jesus is making the point, you can be an expert at God's thoughts and just not do them. You can be ace, top-notch in your doctrine, but not really know God's thoughts. You see, you, you can intellectualize the faith to such an extent that you don't actually know God's ways. There's a we love doctrine. Doctrine is fantastic. Doctrine keeps us safe. But if all Christianity is is some intellectualization or abstraction in our brains, then we're going to miss this chance of life, what Jesus is offering us. So that's a caution to us all. There is a danger of the over-intellectualization to the detriment of the full experience of living in God's kingdom. Okay, why did these folks not get involved? Well... Who knows? Inconvenience, cost, uh, they were on another project, hygiene, who knows? Uh, it's a parable. You, can, you have permission to kind of read into it. All right, verse 33. Uh, you know, all good stories have a natural uh, story arc. Well, we're in a bit of a dip, so we need someone to pull us up and get us to the moral. Well, here he comes, verse 33, but a Samaritan. As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, so the third man who sees, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Compassion. Seeing, no compassion. Seeing, having compassion. You see, the irony here is he's a Samaritan. Okay, pop quiz. How good are Samaritans' doctrine? Okay, pretty poor. So you got the guys who ace at doctrine, and you got the guys who like their doctrine is a, bit, ah, a little bit questionable. Who's the hero of the story? Oh, Jesus is really pushing some buttons here. All right, verse 34. The Samaritan went to him and bound up his wounds, poured oil and wine on it. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn 
and took care of them. And the next day, so he spent the night with them. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of them, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So super practical. He has compassion. He sees. Then he has compassion. And then he extends practical grace. Uses some of his wine, some of his oil, his animal. He changes his schedule. He does many things. Uh, many practical things. He gives up at least a day. He gives a letter of guarantee or some kind of a, a blank check to the innkeeper to say, I'm good for whatever cost it's going to be. He trusts the innkeeper uh, to look after this gentleman. So super practical. Carrying on in verse 36. Then Jesus puts the question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? Well, this is an interesting question because on one level, the answer should be all three of them are neighbors. Surely? I mean, isn't that the point? All of us are neighbors to this man. That was the original question, who is my neighbor? If you're lying in the ditch and you're asking yourself, who's my neighbor? You're hoping that any one of those three walking by is your neighbor. So on one level, the answer should be to who's my neighbor. The answer should be uh, all three. But you, there's a subtlety here because Jesus doesn't say who's my neighbor. He says who proved to be the neighbor. That, that's a different idea. Out of the three, which was the one who proved to be the neighbor? Look, we're all neighbors to some extent, but who proved it? Who proved it? Who demonstrated it? Who acted in consistency with that? And so as it turns out, it's not so much who is my neighbor, but who can I be a neighbor to? It's not so much who's my neighbor, but it's who can I be a neighbor to? So Jesus is making a point here. We have to make the people around us our neighbors. We have to make the people around us as our neighbors. There's a flip side to this coin. You can also unmake people around you to unneighbor them. And that's what the first two did. They were neighbors. But those two unneighbored them. They unmade them as their neighbor. But who loses? Well, the guy in the ditch loses, but the Levite and the priest also lose because they have lost a neighbor. They isolate themselves. They deprive themselves of a fuller experience of the life that is truly life, which is being offered. So unneighboring people carries a self-detriment, let alone to the other person. All right, jumping ahead, first bit of verse 37. He said, the answer, the one who showed him mercy. The one who showed him mercy. Who proved to be the neighbor? The one who showed him mercy. And this brings us to the thorny issue of why a Samaritan? Why hadn't Jesus said a story of, you know, there was some guy going home from the temple late one Thursday night and he was walking down King David Street and he hung a right and there was this alleyway and these guys jumped out and whacked him on the head and, uh, you know, the priest walked by and didn't do anything. The Levite walked by and didn't do anything. And then another fellow Jew walked by and helped him up, put him under his arm, took him off to his house. Why didn't it go like that? It's so shocking that an enemy, a member of another race, a foreigner, someone who they detested and despised, someone where there was this conflict between these two racial groups, the Jews and the Samaritans, suddenly the hero of the story is a Samaritan. 
The other surprise is that the man answers not with who proved to be the neighbor with the one who showed him compassion or money or time or these things, but he, the answer, the true answer is the one who showed him mercy. The one who showed him mercy. And if you get the context that there's a whole conflict going on between these two categories of people, and when you get the answer that it's mercy, it's mercy, first step is to have mercy upon these other people, people who you hold grudges against, people who are unkind to you, people who you're in conflict with. The shock and the surprise of this parable is that it's a Samaritan. And the first step is mercy. There's some, mercy is such a big word. It's, it's a God word. It's a, it's a forgiveness word. It's a, it's, a, it's a dealing with someone as they shouldn't deserve on some level. And yet it's tender. It's full of pity. It's full of compassion. It's, it's everything that God is. And the surprising answer is that it's a Samaritan who shows mercy. He doesn't just do stuff, but he gives them mercy. It's a higher order. It's a higher order. So, here are some conclusions which I would like to throw on the screen. Mercy opens the way for love. Mercy makes a neighbor, then loves the neighbor. Mercy opens the way for love. Mercy makes a neighbor, then loves the neighbor. Or, let me put it slightly differently. Mercy makes the unlovable lovable. Love makes the loved lovely. Mercy makes the unlovable lovable. Mercy, love makes the loved lovely. And putting all these ideas together. Well, let me put it to you like this. Mercy opens the door for love. But you can also put it the other way around. Love opens the door for mercy. And so the question is, how do I love? How do I love God? How do I love the neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And the answer to love is mercy. Remember, that was our question, point number one. The question is how to love. The answer is give mercy. Mercy and love go together. The one precedes the other, and the other precedes the other. And when you put it together, you get this big word, grace. Grace is the combination of mercy and love all fused together. And then Jesus says to the man, well, you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. Go and find people who are totally different to you, people who are other to you, people who you need to lead with mercy and love and forgive and help, and then follow all of that with practical deeds. Mercy is the real winner in the scenario. Which, of course, is an insight into Jesus Christ himself. And so part of this parable, if you really zoom out from it, is uh, being saved by an enemy. Because the Samaritan and the man in the ditch were enemies to each other. And the message of Jesus Christ is that he comes to us. We were lying helpless in our own road to Jericho, in our sin and our depravity and our helplessness. At en enmity, enemies with God, and God himself comes walking down the road to save us, to love us, to look after us, to die on a cross for us, to rise again for us, to rehabilitate us, to give us mercy so that his love might accompany it. He loved us, and then he gave us mercy as well. These things are all interchangeable. He set us in an inn. He patched us up, bandaged us up, healed us. This is the message 
of the Christian gospel. And what flows from that, not only on a spiritual level, our relationship with God, but should also be then on a practical level. As we love God and are loved by Him, so we should love others as well. Okay, so that's all the theory. That's all the theory. And for the last five minutes, I want to talk on some practical things at ECP as we commit ourselves to uh, commitment number three, taking practical grace to the city and beyond here at ECP. So just a couple of quickfire questions, and then I'm going to call on our spectacular volunteers to lead us through the next section. Number one, I want you to notice that there's an overlap with commitment number two. Commitment number two was in-house grace. What's really important when we are talking about in-house grace is that priority is that we're going to look after the poor, the marginalized, and the needy within our midst. We, we can't have those eyes only outside, and then there are people within our midst who are neglected. So that's really important to say. But all of that falls under commitment number two, is operating with grace within this environment. Okay, you got that one. There is some overlap. We're not forgetting the poor and the marginalized, the vulnerable within our midst. That's our priority. But we're not going to leave it there because we've got commitment number three, which spills out into the folk beyond this room. Second point to say is that our commitment is for everyone in this room. It's not just a few love and mercy volunteers, but this commitment, all the leaders, this commitment is for all of us. So we want a bottom-up approach. At this stage, we're not going to run tons of programs and activities. We're putting the ball in your court, and we're saying to everyone here, this is for everyone to be doing. This is for everyone to be doing. At some level, to some extent. So we want all of us to commit ourselves to this. It's a bottom-up approach. Third thing to say. Historically, we have been called mercy and justice. Okay, We want to for many different reasons, escape from the word justice, not because we don't believe in justice, but we want to base ourselves on this parable, and we're going to use Jesus' words, love and mercy, just as this parable is indicated. So we're going to call commitment number three, in-house tagline jargon, love and mercy. Okay. Our definition, loving the needy, the broken, the poor, and the suffering with mercy. Okay, step number four. Sorry. Pardon me. Point number four is our framework. This is the framework of how we're going to think about love and mercy and how we are going to try and take practical grace to the city on this bottom-up approach. Step number one, which is what I want to say to you all. If it's bottom-up and if we're putting the ball in your court and asking you all to commit to this, step number one, I want you to think about your own family. Your own family. They might be Christian. They might not be Christian. Are there folks in your own family who need some form of practical grace. Start there. Point number two, or step number two, look around your immediate neighborhood. Everyone was seeing in the parable, what do you see around you? I've been particularly challenged by this. So in my own life, I have been, well, let's can throw up the photo. Is there a photo? I think it's the next slide, Marcus. There we go. So. Okay, you can go back and go to the next slide. Uh, I, that was Brian Yao, by the way. The man can fly a plane straight, 400 people on a Boeing, but don't ask him to hold the camera straight. That's why the photo was a, was a little. Uh, 
in my neighborhood, there's this amazing organization which uh, raises money and cuts up food and serves food for people who don't have money to pay for food. So in my own small way, I am trying to do step number two, see in my neighborhood how I can be involved. Uh, step number three. Okay, step number one is your family. Step number two is look around your own neighborhood, your own HDB block, whatever's happening in your streets, in your, in your neck of the woods, in your office block, and so on and so forth. Step number three. Over and above one and two, if you are fortunate, your family's okay, and you, there's nothing that's immediate apparent in your immediate neighborhood, then what I want to suggest is support an innkeeper in ECP. So in ECP, and you're going to hear in a moment, there are people doing amazing things who are doing this bottom-up stuff, not waiting for the official church, but just getting on and doing great stuff out there in the world. And uh, if you want to help and support, go for it. That's why we're going to let you know in a moment who these good people are. Uh, fifth thing I want to say is uh, at this stage, we're not offering heavy programs. We, are aim we don't have a staff member who's driving this. We are volunteer driven. Sixth point I want to say is uh, often people ask, what's the overlap with evangelism and uh, mercy and justice, or love and mercy as we call it? Well, there's a big overlap. Uh, Jesus will, 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 will say two things simultaneously. He will say, do good deeds so people may praise your Father in heaven, and there will be an attribution. There will be some connection back to God. That's really important. But at other times, the way Jesus operates he just does good things for the sake of good things, just to be loving, just to be loving, just to do good things, just to do good works in and of itself is a good thing. But on other occasions, he does connect it to a bigger message. So a couple of final thoughts on this. We should be prepared to love and get no reward or return on investment, as it were, but we should be prepared to love and, when appropriate, offer the message of grace. People's greatest need is Christ. But people also have other needs. Sometimes we are God's answers to those needs in part or in whole. People's felt needs are often a doorway into their deepest spiritual needs as well. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.